Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now, the stud here. Please welcome your Studcast host of television and radio fame, Tony Basilio. And your stud is here, ladies and gentlemen, in the flesh. 93 years, four generations, first family of wrestling. Now it will be told. Now it can be told. It has been a secret, ladies and gentlemen, till now. In our maiden voyage, we begin to unlock the vault. On the stud cast, as we welcome in, bow your head when you say thy name, the great Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. Stud, are you ready to do this thing? I am so pumped, man. I am darn sure ready, Tony. And a third member of our team, the great Craig Jenkins as well. Jenks, are you ready? I have been trying to convince this man for over a decade at some point in time to document the lineage that is his family in the world of professional wrestling and now it uh, I've always tried to get him to write a book and he just never had the time to do that and now Tony you and I are going to be part of something that quite frankly in my personal opinion should and could be in the Smithsonian Institution. That's really nothing well, that, to live up to there. Yeah, that's a little so. profound, isn't it? I think he's got some really strong points. People don't know that much about my family, and we've been kind of quiet and kept our mouths shut about wrestling. And We started way, way back, and we're the biggest wrestling family on the planet. We're the oldest wrestling family on the planet. We're the only wrestling family on the planet that has four generations that's been in the ring. We have a story to tell that I've had hundreds of people literally say, you need to write a book. Never gotten around to writing a book, but we're going to write the book right here on our studcast. We're going to tell the story from the very beginning as it pertains to my family and the more than 20 members of it that have participated in the sport, as it also pertains to what pro wrestling was and how it became what it is now. I think this will be a historical journey in a way because we're going to lay out the foundations of how territories were built from there all the way through today up to today and present. I'm really looking forward to it. I probably should have done it many, many years ago. Would have been great to do it in 1990 as an example, right after I got out of wrestling. But I'm really enthusiastically excited about the opportunity to do it as a lead up well as a lead up to this let it be known that this has been weeks if not months in the making and the way we've structured this 
is that uh, I don't have anything in front of me. Don't have an agenda. I don't have anything in this particular podcast that we have to get through. You're calling the shots here. And I'm simply going to be a facilitator to help you pull as much stuff from your family tree as humanly possible. And there's so much there. There's just such a richness there. Ron, along those lines, one thing that I like to do is hop around on the Internet, and especially in some of the historical sites. And you put out recently, I guess, on your Facebook page, you're going to be doing this. Right. And there's been a tremendous response to that from people. People have been tremendously excited about you doing this. Because until now, this story has been pretty much untold. Yeah. People like Craig, as you say, have begged you to write the book. And I'm sure he's not the first that have, that have come to you and said, or someone in your family and said, hey, let's unlock the vault of what's going on in your past. Let me ask you off the top, why have you guys been so secretive until now? Well... We go back so far that that when my grandfather started wrestling in 1924, he had to learn, like every wrestler back in those days, to shoot. It was a totally different animal than what it is today. You did not get to be a wrestler without being able to wrestle. He was trained by two of the greatest that walked the face of the earth, literally. He was born in Oklahoma in 1902 in Salazar, Oklahoma in 1902. His father was a half Indian. His mother was Irish. That's a pretty nasty combination when you stick that together. And Roy Welch is the patriarch. He's the where it all started. He's the foundation of everything that came afterward. It encompasses not just the Welch family. It encompasses a family called the Hatfields that turned out to be the Fields brothers. Uh, they are my grandfather's sister's children. They all three became wrestlers. All of their sons became wrestlers. It includes my grandfather's brothers, three other brothers. One had a son that wrestled. The other, one, Herb Welch, had a son that wrestled. Jack Welch uh, was the oldest of the brothers. He wrestled, but he didn't have any children. And Lester Welch, which was born 20-something years after Roy, he has two sons that wrestle. And the lineage just goes on down. Um, Roy had a son, my dad, Edward Welch, who became Buddy Fuller. And he has two sons, my brother and myself. Dad's sister, Roy's daughter, married a guy named Bill Golden. And there you get Jimmy Golden. I mean, it just continues. The lineage and the lines just keep going and going and going. Some became wrestlers. Some became wrestlers and promoters. Some became referees. And all the family members were involved, even as far as your in-laws. My grandfather pioneered and built the, the biggest wrestling territory ever built. And he used his family members to develop it and control it. All that's going to be in the story. If we want to, let's just start with Roy. Roy was born 1902. He lived in the West. When he was about seven years old, his family moved from Oklahoma to New Mexico in the high plains of New Mexico. They were raised really ruggedly. He only had a fifth grade education. He ended up with just a fifth grade education. He created the largest territory, the largest wrestling company that was ever built. And at the same time, he built the second largest dairy in the history of the South, 
at the same time, during the 20-year period of time, he built both of those companies by himself at a fifth-grade education. Life was tough for them. Crazy things happened in his life. And I used to ride with him a lot. When I was about 8, 10, 12, 14 years old, he would take me on trips, and we would talk, and he would tell me the stories. One of the first he told me, and he said, when he was nine years old, that they had cows. They had a few cows. They were in the northern plains in New Mexico. When the winter came, they had to drive those cows south off of the plateau into the southern part of New Mexico. And he said he would walk barefooted. He had his brother Herb was younger than him, was about seven years old, and the oldest brother Jack was about 12. They would herd the cows, and Ed, their father, who was half Indian, he rode the horse. He had the only horse. They had to circumvent the barbed wire fences. There was a few of them. This is the early 1900s. We're talking about 1910, maybe 1912. And they would drive these cattle south. He said the first time they did this, they went uh, probably 200 miles. It took them. They spent nights uh, on laying there. They just stayed with the cows. And when they got to where they wanted to go, his daddy told him, he says, on the way, he says, I'm going to teach you how to wire rabbits out of a hole. Roy said, what's that all about? And he said, I'll tell you when we get there. When he taught him how to, how to get rabbits out of the hole, taught him how to build a fire. And when they got to where they wanted to go, he says, uh, the day they got ready to leave, he says, we're going home. He told uh, Roy, he says, we're going home. And, and Roy said, he was, he was like nine years old. He says, what do you mean you're going home? They're now in the middle of nowhere and the prairie. All they've got is like 10 cows. And his dad says, well, I taught you how to build a fire and how to wire rabbits out of a hole. You're going to follow these cows for the next three months. We're going home. And three months from now, we're going to come back and find you. You just stay with the cows. And at nine years old, he left him in the southern part of New Mexico. He left him a couple of blankets so he could make him a little pad at night. He built fires because there wasn't a lot of wood in that area. He built fires with cow crap because uh, you couldn't find enough wood to build a fire sometimes. So they he pundled up the cow crap. That's how he started his fire, built his fires. He wired the rabbits out of the holes, and he ate rabbits and drank what water he could find and stayed there for three months. So he was raised like that. Herb, I'll give you an example of what kind of family they were, and they were tough kids. Uh, they had no shoes, like I was saying. They did all this walking and everything with no shoes. And he told me one time, Herb was seven years old. He was two years younger than Roy. He said they were walking down a path. His dad was riding a horse, and he rode down the path. And he said when they got to the spot, there was a tarantula in the middle of the path, big tarantula he said he was he stood up about five inches tall he said he saw the tarantula first he jumped off the path and then his brother jack jumped off the path and herb's the youngest of the bunch and he said herb just kept walking and when he got to the tarantula he picked up his foot he just stomped it with his heel smashed him in the ground and uh, they were like, oh, God, look out, look out. Jesus, the tarantula, he'll kill you. And he's, he said, ah, he's just a damn spider, right? And, uh, you know, and this went on down. I mean, they were they were rugged group of boys. And those guys went into a profession that was going to be a rugged. Back in those days, it was an extremely rugged profession. 
So Roy lived in New Mexico. He lived out west. He grew up really in tough times. And when he got older, he was lucky enough they, that he went. He got a job in Borger, Texas in the oil fields. And oil was just being discovered. It was just becoming a big deal. And, uh, and they had lots of fields there, lots of wells that they had drilled in that area because it was obviously a big pocket of oil there. He was close to Amarillo, and he went to Amarillo, and there was no organized wrestling. Now, we're talking about the 1920s, 1918, 1920. There's no organized wrestling in America at that point. Well, let's back up a little bit to 1900. Let's just say we start talking about 1900. In 1900, there were very few wrestlers at all. The biggest wrestlers in America, one guy was named Frank Gotch. There was a guy named George Hackensmith from Germany, and they were shooters. They wrestled a couple of matches that drew huge crowds, one in Chicago and one in Philadelphia or somewhere in the east. I'm talking uh, 30,000 people way, way back. Those matches, one of them lasted two hours. And because they were shooting, there was no action. It was a totally different sport. There was no ropes. I don't even know if they had a ring. You know, I'm not sure what a ring or a mat or whatever it might have been. I don't know where they wrestled. I've never seen pictures of it, but I have read about this. And I've had my dad talk about Frank Gotch and Hackensmith and those guys. They were basically the stars of wrestling. And they wrestled two times for what was supposed to be a world championship. It was a German against an American, and uh, Frank Gotch won both of those matches. And wrestling stayed pretty much, it was just, it was different sport than any of the others, obviously. It did not have the fanfare. It did not have any way to publicize it. It was non-existent, basically, until about 1920s. And uh, when Roy got involved, he met a guy named Cal Farley who was in Amarillo, Texas. Roy told me Cal Farley, he said the guy was a humanitarian. He was born in Iowa. He went in World War I. He wrestled in the Army, and he had learned to wrestle. He was a shooter. He knew how to, how to wrestle. And Roy went to see a match that he heard they were having, and he actually got to talk to Cal Farley. Cal Farley liked him. He got his name, a whole information, and Cal Farley went on to found the first boys' ranch in America. In 1939, he built the first boys' ranch. He became so popular that in 1996, the United States Post Office made a stamp for Cal Farley. The guy who got your grandfather the guy that got in, him, into the sport. The guy that got him into the sport was named Cal Farley. He was a great humanitarian. He built these foster homes and boys' ranches. He did magnificent things, good enough that the U.S. Post Office says, we're going to get you a stamp. There was a Cal Farley stamp. They had a nickname for him. They called him America's Greatest Foster Father. It's amazing. He was born December 25 of 1895 there you go that's some fascinating it's it and so cal farley is how my granddad had Mm. his first contact with a professional wrestler now cal was a professional wrestler at that point he started to have matches in amarillo there was no was he promoting at that time 
Well, I guess I assume that Cal was the owner. I assume that Cal ran it, Mm -hmm. and Cal must have known a couple of guys that could wrestle. But there was no organized wrestling much, you know. And I guess that the word got around. They said, hey, we're going to have – I don't even know how they advertised back in those days. But the word must have got around and said, hey, they're going to be a wrestling match over here. There was probably no facilities, no telling how they did it. But he said – it was just in its infancy. So primitive. You think about that. There's no no radio. There's no commercial radio yet. You're still a few years away from commercial radio. So how do you promote back then? Through the newspaper? You could have done that. But, you know, I, I'm thinking to myself when he's talking like that, yeah. it was just go put up poster flyers, boards or flyers or, yeah. all over you the know, town. Uh, word of mouth. Maybe I have mean, an impromptu match in the downtown, which, which has happened in the past too. to draw some attention. That's a possibility, too. So Roy worked out a couple of times with Cal Farley. Cal Farley had a great friend who was absolutely one of the toughest and best shooters in, ever in the world. His name was Dutch Mantell. And we're not talking about the Dutch Mantell that – has been wrestling in the last 30 years and 40 years. Memphis guy. Not not Memphis Dutch damn tell. We're talking about the original badass Dutch man tell. So Dutch man tell that we know of today stole that gimmick from the original Dutch man tell. That's I what assume you're that's saying. where he got the name. I assume that's where he got the name. Yeah. And your, uh, your good friend Dutch man tell will be yeah. glad to know today that you're referring yeah. to him as a, a thief here on the first stud cast. Uh, Dutch happens to be a personal friend of mine. Well, there you really, go. And he was one of the first wrestlers that ever wrestled for me when I started Southeastern Championship Wrestling. Dutch Mantell and a guy from England named John Foley came here and lived in Knoxville. Who Getting still resides back, in our area, by the there way. There you Great go. Guy. But back to there the original Dutch Mantell. So, go ahead. So Roy's introduced to Dutch Mantell. And Dutch Mantell is not just a wrestler, but he's a character. And he's wealthy. He's a wealthy guy. And uh, that was unusual back in those days. And what he did... I asked Roy, I said, how did he get to be wealthy? You know, I mean, if there was no real wrestling around and they didn't get a lot of chances to wrestle, he said he would go to small towns. And back in those days, they had saloons in every town. They were dirt streets and the whole deal, you know. And every little town had a saloon. And he said, would he go to these saloons out in West Texas and through New Mexico and on into Arizona? And he would show up. He would go into the saloon. He was a small guy. In stature, but he knew how to shoot. He knew really how to wrestle. So he would go into a saloon, and he would be very mouthy, and he'd go, "Hey, you know, uh, I'm I'm here, man, and I I'm really fast, and I got some money in my pocket, and I'll bet I can outrun anybody in this damn town." You know, he'd start out with something like, "I'm a great runner," and nobody knew him they would say well finally he'd get a bed maybe a quarter or whatever it was you know and he'd cover the beds they'd go out of the saloon find somebody that they knew was fast and they'd bring them back and they would put it get in the mid in the street in front of the saloon and somebody'd say here's a starting point and down there's the finish line go and they would run and the guy would beat him and he'd go back in, he'd be pissed, you know. And now it's like, hey, uh, well, you know, gee, I'm at, maybe I lost the running race, but I'm strong, stronger than I look, and I can beat anybody at arm wrestling. So he would get up a little more money. 
Now they'd bet a little more. They go, well, geez, he, he couldn't run, you know. Maybe he don't look strong. So the bets would rise, and they would run out of the saloon and go tell their friends, hey, there's a dumbass down here, and he's giving away money, right? And so the saloon would start to fill up a little more, right? They, they'd all come in there, so they set up a table now, find a big strong boy that they knew was tough, and he covered all the bets again. Okay, here we go. Now the bets kind of went from a quarter, let's say they doubled to a half buck or whatever it was a lot of money back in those days and so they would have the arm wrestling contest and he would lose again guy would just slam him down you know he would let him just wham just like he was going to break his arm and then he'd get up and go oh damn you know this well i'm a wrestler i'll wrestle anybody how about i wrestle anybody now you know they're thinking this guy's just an idiot right i mean he can't run and he ain't strong and now he's going to wrestle somebody and then he would really milk them he would say i'm gonna double the bets you bet a dollar i'll cover it with two you know and all the saloon went empty it he'd wait for an hour there and they'd go run they'd find everybody they knew god this come on we're going to get rich come on let's go down <laughs> some guys wanted to bet all they had some guys bet a little bit whatever he'd wait until he'd cover all the bets he'd wait until the place was packed out he'd had every every dollar in town basically right and uh then he'd say okay let's go out here in the street there was no ring or any of that. He didn't need a ring. He said, let's go out here in the street. we will do it in the dirt. They'd all just, uh, oh, everybody pile out in a big circle around them. They're like, well, here we go, you know, boom. Somebody said, go, bang. Within two minutes, he just murdered the guy. Then he collected all the bread and stuffed all that cash in his pockets, and he would go 15, 20 miles away because there was no communication back and forth, not about people traveling, and he'd do the same thing in the next town and the same thing the next yep. day and the same thing. He became a wealthy guy. He had, he had the first car probably in the state of Texas he bought. you know. So he was a unique individual and extremely, extremely tough. So Cal Farley sends Roy, introduces him, and says, Dutch will train you. Now, it's very similar to when I came in as a wrestler. You did not train. When you trained a guy, especially in those days, you heard him. I mean, you didn't want to train him. Dutch didn't want to train him. Dutch you said, heard him. Yeah. H-U-R-T. Oh, yeah. You stretch him, right? Yeah. Oh, ask, ask Hulk Hogan. This is a prime example. Hulk Hogan wanted to go learn to wrestle in Tampa. He went to the sportatorium, the old snake pit in Tampa, where I grew up. And he says, I won't be a wrestler. And they, they all looked at him, and they said, nah, nah. So they said, yeah, come on in. We'll teach you how to wrestle. And they broke his leg, his first workout. They wanted him not to come back. So they broke Hogan's leg, and he went away for months. So... So that gives you an idea of of that's that's back in the in the late seventies or the seventies or uh, that that happened. So this is in nineteen. Rewind the clock sixty more years. Yeah. Oh yeah, sixty years. Imagine back. how tough those Imagine people are. Imagine. Yeah. How. So what what he does to Roy? These are Roy, frontiersmen you're talking about. These are yeah, tough. Oh. I mean, your grandfather lived with. Uh, like you were saying, the cattle. Yeah. Survive yeah, on your own, Lived son. on the prairie at yeah. nine years old for three months by himself and, and wired rabbits out of the ground to, to, to feed himself with. And uh, so so uh, 
Dutch, Dutch hurts him on purpose. He puts him in a hook scissor, and it's a very painful hole. Uh, and and it, back in the day, it was used a whole lot. You didn't see people use hook scissors anymore. Uh, but in the 50s, as an example, there was a great wrestler in Atlanta named Paul Jones, and that was his finish hold. And it was a very painful hold, and you could hurt guys with it. And he put a hook scissor on my granddad, on Roy, and broke his ribs on purpose. Heard him crack. Roy heard it on crack. You know, he's like, oh, God. So, uh, and Dutch started he with the Dutchman, and he said, uh, duh, hope, uh, he said, oh, I hurt you. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, I never see you again, I'm sure. And he pushes him out the door. <laughs> basically right like okay i'm finished with you you can go and so roy goes goes away he gets two months later he's getting well his ribs are well and he goes back knocks on the door says uh hey uh, i'm back and dutch says oh uh, you not many not many come back uh, what, you want some more and roy says yeah yeah you know i want to learn I, i'm here to learn so he broke his wrist you know, he put a hammer, he put a wrist lock on him and broke his wrist. So he goes away again for another few months. And, uh, you know, uh, it's a, it's a, it's, it was like he did not want to train him and he didn't want him to be there. And, uh, and so that went on a couple of times and, uh, finally Dutch decides to train him. And, uh, it was, uh, it was just an, a, a, it was a different atmosphere entirely of anything that anybody can imagine anymore. And uh, it was, uh, Roy went on with Dutch for a couple more years. Uh, they had a lot of experiences together. Finally, after the second time, Roy went back to wrestle Dutch again. And Dutch says, uh, I like you. You got guts. He says, I'm not going to hurt you now. I'm going to train you. So he trained him for months. And uh, then he sent him out to work in the carnivals because back in the day, they did have carnivals, and they had what was called the ballet. Uh, and, and they had wrestlers, shooters, uh, usually one or two guys, and they would introduce them. They'd get a crowd in front of their stage. They, you had to pay a little money, and they'd go backstage, but they would put two wrestlers out front, and they would say, okay, ladies and gentlemen, if you want to wrestle a wrestler here, you know, uh, and if you can beat him, you're going to win so much money or whatever it is. And then they would say, now, you want to see this? You can buy your ticket here and come around the back behind the curtain or whatever it was, and, and they would go at it. Well, Roy was 5'8". He probably weighed 160 pounds in those days. And, you know, people, he says, of the two guys, there was a second guy that was bigger than him. He said, I got all the matches. He said, they wanted to wrestle me. They would say, who do you want to wrestle? And they would all point to him. I want him. <coughs> so Roy, he really learned his the art of, of hurting guys. And, uh, so these are these are not worked fights at this oh, point. Oh no, these are shoot fights. This is shoots. I mean, he he goes into a town he's never been in. The carnival's there, and they have the other little parts of it. But one of the parts of the carnival is they set up a stage, and they have the two wrestlers come out, and they build a little crowd. Of, hey, come on over here and check out our wrestlers here. And then they say, you want to wrestle one of these guys? And if you can win, we're going to give you five dollars, whatever it was big amount of money back in 19 1920 or so so they would give him they would and then 
they would give you a choice of who you want to wrestle. Then they take you around back. And he did that for a year. He just traveled all around the West with the carnival as a wrestler on on the valley. Did anybody ever get over on him? He never lost. Wow. Oh, he never lost. And and uh, I'll tell you a story about my granddad, how mean he was, how bad he was. He was a bad guy. Uh, he told me one time when I was a kid, I rode with him, and I said, uh, I said, you know, what happens if you ran into a guy that you – was really really tough and you couldn't beat him and he says oh that's easy he said if you can't beat him you eat him and i said what do you mean you eat him he says you take his finger you start with a finger and you get that finger in your mouth you eat that finger and then you eat the next finger you eat the hand you eat his arm you eat his shoulder you eat his till he's all gone and i was like "Uh, you know i was like i'm thinking well what what does that mean exactly you know and uh and then as i got to be older and being around other wrestlers i would ask them i said you know roy used to tell me if you can't beat him you eat him and they said ron he wasn't lying he said if he ever got to the point to where he thought he might lose or you might get beat he would he said he wasn't above just taking a big bite he liked noses, is what they used to tell me. He liked to start with the nose. He would have had a field day with the Italians, <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like buffet. So we're talking about Roy Welch, and we're back in the beginning, and he's a young man. How old was he when he got into the wrestling game, for the record? He was born in 1902. He had his first professional wrestling match in 1924. So he spent this time with Dutch Mantell, a few years with Dutch Mantell. And Dutch Mantell, just to give you an idea of what how tough Dutch was, uh, Dutch came to him. He told me this story. He said, Dutch one time says, uh, Roy, uh, I, want, I need to go to Houston, to Houston, Texas. Now, they're in Amarillo. This is 1922, 23 maybe. He says, I need to go to Amarillo. There are two wrestling promoters. He says they have matches in in, in Houston. And uh, he says they're warring against each other. One guy has his big star. The other guy has his big star. And uh, these two guys, he says, one these two promoters have gotten together and they've, they've looked at uh, – They've, they've tried to figure out who should have control of Houston. So they make an agreement. They say, you find your best shooter. I find my best shooter. We have a match in Houston, and whoever wins that match going to be the owner of Houston. The original loser-leave-town match. It was basically not the promoter left yeah, town. Yeah, that's what It wasn't saying. just the wrestlers left town. The promoter left town. <laughs> yeah. So the two promoters sit down, and they make an agreement. Tell you what, hands. let's do. Hold right there. We come back on the other side. We're going to take our first ever break here on your stud cast. We are starting back at the very beginning with the Tennessee stud himself, Ron Fuller, as he tells the family history. For the first time, it will be told as we continue with the story. We're in Houston right now. It's promoter versus promoter, and we come back with more after this. 
Hey, this is David Summers. Thank you for joining us for this historical and unique stud cast. We invite you to visit RonFullerTNStud.com. That's RonFullerTNStud.com. And take a ride through the stud store. Souvenirs like masks and t-shirts will soon be available, as well as vintage videos of the stud in action. Friend us on Facebook at Ron Fuller Welch and ask any question you may have about the sport we all love. If your question is selected as the best of the stud cast, you'll receive a personal autographed 8 by 10 photo of the stud. Hang that baby up in the living room. Follow us on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch and tell us what you think about our stud cast. Message us on Instagram at Ron Fuller Welch and show your support. We value your opinion, so communicate with us on this awesome journey through wrestling history with the first family of wrestling. We're honored and humbled by the response we're receiving, and we hope you'll continue to spread the word. And remember, a new stud cast is born every Monday, so Saturday up and ride with the stud there's only one horse like the tennessee stud you are back seated ringside on this edition of the ron fuller Studcast. absolutely amazing honor to be here with you today as my name is tony basilio ron fuller the tennessee stud is across from me craig jenkins also in our studio when we left you were telling us now that we were in houston we were getting ready to be privy to a promoter versus promoter match. Share it with us. So, uh, first, let me start with the trip. The the journey from Amarillo, Texas to Houston, Texas in 1920. Had Not to easy be in those days. What's a three-day okay. trip? Yeah. No interstates. <laughs> there. Oh, no, interstates. oh, no. No roads. Lots of times, they're driving through cow pasture. It's crazy how they got there. And I'd already told you Dutch was rich because he'd figured out how to make money by – sucking all these people into these bets so he bought him one of the first cars probably bought in texas and he puts roy in the car and they make the trip from amarillo to houston and when he gets there he tells roy he says uh i need you to watch my back you know he says i don't know what i'm gonna get into here you know if i get down there and i'm gonna wrestle this guy i don't want that guy to have another guy jump in do something to me from behind. You watch my back. He really trusted Roy enough. He says, you know, he must have thought this is the guy I need. So Roy says they get to Houston. He says the match gets ready to start. He said they go down to the ring, and he stands in the corner. There's another guy backing up the other wrestler, you know, and he don't know who that is. They've never met each other. They're not in the same dressing room. This is a shoot. The winner of this gets Houston, Texas, basically right so uh they get in the ring dutch was a great wrestler and roy said i expected that when they started the match that dutch is going to take him down and he's going to put a hold on him he's going to hurt him as fast as he can obviously and he says for some reason he says uh dutch pushes him into the ropes they break a hold he says the second time they pushed him in the ropes he said the guy threw a half punch at him he took a swing at him it's a wrestling match but Instead of starting out wrestling, the guy took a swing at him, and Dutch hit the guy underneath his eye, and he broke that orbital bone right there. There's a bone uh, right underneath your eye that holds your eyeball in your face. Mm-hmm. He hit him so hard that the guy's eyeball fell out of his face, and the guy went down on his knees. He started vomiting because when you when that happened, I asked Roy, I said, well, why did he start to vomit? And he says, well, think about it. He says, you got one eye that's looking out at the crowd and another one's looking at the floor. 
you know, and he says his equilibrium was dis- destroyed. And what his mind is seeing made him sick instantly. He went down on his knees. He vomited. That was the match. They stopped the match. And Dutch had won. 20 seconds in. I mean, it's bang, bang, literally, bow. It's all over. He says they took the guy, put his eyeball in, in the ring. They took a towel, puts his eyeball back in the socket, covers it with a towel, and they take him out of the ring, and they take him to the dressing room. And uh, so Dutch gets out of the ring. Roy starts back to their dressing room, and Dutch said, no, no, no. He said, I want to go see him, see the guy, you know. So Roy says, oh, well, okay, whatever, Dutch. You know, hell, you're the man. So so they go in the dressing room, and uh, Roy says that the guy's sitting there. He's on a stool, and he's got a towel over his face, and he's bent down so he can keep his eyeball back in his socket, right? Till he can get him to the hospital and try to do something for him. And he says, Dutch stops in front of him, taps him on the head, like to get his attention. And the guy looks up, he's got one eye now, right? He's looking up and he's like, uh, oh, he's like backing off, like, oh, don't you hit me. And, uh, and uh, he says, it's a good thing you quit. The guy goes, why? And he goes, because I was already looking at that other eye. Wow. <laughs> These are people that are just cut from a different cloth, so to speak. Oh, I mean, you know, there's no describing it. There's really no describing the way their minds work. And when you added the ability to hurt people to that mind, I mean, you were, they were dangerous, dangerous individuals. And that's what Roy wanted. That's, that's, he was, it was, it was ingrained in him somehow. Uh, I don't know where he got all of that, but he, he had that bad and really rough upbringing. And this just gave him an opportunity to uh, be what he was. And from there, they come back from that trip. Uh, and and Roy and Dutch shoot. They, he does not teach Roy anything but how to shoot. And then when they worked out every day, they shot every day. And so Roy would get hurt every day. He Dutch wouldn't hurt him to breaking his ribs, but if he got him in a hook scissor, if he got him in a wrist lock or whatever he got him in, he would crank it to where he'd tap out, basically. Okay, all right, all right don't, don't break it. And they had a workout in which Roy actually beat Dutch. And uh, Dutch put him in a hook scissor again, the same way he had broke his ribs the first time. And Roy turned in the hook scissor, which, God, that's it. And I've been in hook scissors. And uh, that's a very painful hold. And he turned in the hook scissor, broke his ribs again, but had Dutch pinned. And and Dutch says, okay, let me go. Dutch had the hold on him, but he says, let me go. Uh, Roy got up. His ribs are broke again. He's kind of hanging his shoulder. And he's, he's and uh, Dutch says, uh, he says, uh, I never wrestle you again. He goes, you ready? He said, I send you to to a friend. Ohio Mm. and that's where Roy became a professional wrestler Dutch calls it or communicates somehow with the friend of his who is another shooter that has a a he has the beginnings of a territory he has a Columbus operation in Columbus Ohio and Roy goes to Columbus Ohio takes his wife and and he and my dad's not even born at that point. And they go journey from New Mexico, Borger, Texas. 
uh, to Columbus, Ohio. So what year would this be, and how this old would Roy be? 1924. He's 22 years old. 20. Okay. He's about 22 years old. Young guy. Takes his longest trip he's ever taken, obviously. And not just takes the trip. He's taking a journey into the unknown. He don't know what he's going to run into. He don't know who's going to be there. He don't know how tough they are. He doesn't know any of that. But He doesn't even know it's that what he's going to do is learn to work yet, does yeah. he? He doesn't even know no, that, right? No, no, no. Because nobody works. Yeah, he, I mean, there is no he, work. He thinks he's a fighter. So there was no working at this time, as no, you and I know it. Everybody shoot. Everybody shot. It I was mean, a tough know, guy yeah. deal. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, nobody sat down and, and, you know, it's just like I'm talking about telling you about the Houston deal. That was the way it was. Nobody sat down. They just said, uh, you want to wrestle? Yeah, I want to wrestle. Okay, well, let's wrestle. Nobody said, hey, you're going to do this, you're going to do that. It was a war. It was the real thing. And what you're telling us coincides with what's written about the history of the sport because historians say that in the early 20s is the formations of the territory. So now we're getting there to the point where these guys say to each other, We've got to survive here. I mean, we're, you know, yeah. like 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 is said about the business today, the marks are inside the dressing room. The marks can't be inside the dressing room. They've got to be in the stands. Dutch Mantel, yeah. the second Dutch yeah. Mantel that we know of, it was either Orlando or it was a pay-per-view or something along those lines. I was standing in the back. It was me and I think Jeff Jarrett and Dutch Mantel. We were watching, you know, how it is nowadays. You go back behind the curtains and you'll pull a little bit of the curtain on what, and on you'll watch a match from out there and something was going on or whatever and it's complete quiet and dutch mantel says man i remember when the marks used to be outside the barricades now the marks are inside the ring and i'm like holy smoke that's prophetic yeah so we're back in ohio and we're in 1924 your grandfather roy welch is 22 years old and he gets his first taste of what we now know as professional wrestling Pick it up. Let's kind of tear it apart here a little bit Go before ahead. we get to it, okay? Think about it. You're shooting. Everybody's shooting. When you shoot, you get hurt. People get hurt. We go back 20 years earlier to, to Hackenschmidt and Frank Gotch's match and the two-hour match. There's no excitement to that. You can't draw money with that, right? You get a headlock and you hold that guy for 45 minutes in that one hold. He can't get out of your headlock. And he grabs a leg, and he's got your leg for 20 minutes. And then you get back. Maybe they separate. You get to your feet. Somebody gets a wrist lock. And now all of a sudden they're down on the mat again for 20 minutes. There's no excitement there. There's nothing that uh, makes people want to buy a ticket to that, in my opinion. And, And secondly, guys get hurt. So you can't wrestle. You can't do that to yourself five nights a week. No person can humanly survive that. And if everybody was doing that and they were all shooting on an every night basis and then every time you got in the ring basis, there would be no wrestlers. Nobody would be healthy enough to wrestle. So the sport starts to change a little bit. And when Roy gets there, he finds that he's the baddest some bitch in the in the valley. There's none of them that can touch him, right? He really realizes that he had training from the very best, and when he was so respected that guys were scared of him, because they knew if they did anything that was really pushed him, he was going to react in a way that was going to be detrimental to their health, and uh, so. He became a star. 
there was still a lot of matches in which it was 70% a shoot. Didn't just evolve that we don't shoot anymore. There were still shooters. And the guys he were wrestling were shooters. They just weren't as good as he was. They didn't have the knowledge and the capability of doing what he could do. And so he became a star in Ohio. There was another operation in Toledo. It was one of the, it's, 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 the wrestling is in its infancies. It's a few places that promoters say, I want to have a match over here. And I'm in Toledo, Ohio, and I want to see if I can find me a wrestler or two. I'll advertise it, and, and we'll see what we can draw. So there's two operations in Ohio. This is the early 20s. He's in Columbus, and he has no affiliation or association with the Toledo office. And he became such a star in the Columbus area that his name, it preceded him and built into different part of Ohio. So that the Toledo guy says, I want that guy to come here and wrestle too. So he was the first guy in the, probably the history of, of, of that era to wrestle and for two promoters. He didn't promote the towns. He just showed up and wrestled, and he did his thing. That's basically how it all got cranked up and how he got his beginning. My dad was born in Columbus, Ohio, same area. He was actually born in New Mexico because my grandmother went back to New Mexico before having a child, and dad was born out there in New Mexico. And Roy stayed and wrestled and continued to wrestle. She went back by train to Ohio and joined him again. And she had my dad with him at the first time he'd seen him. And a territory back then, or that first territory, what would that have encompassed? What kind of mileage? What 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 was the territory there? There wasn't no territory. Now territories, as we as we knew them in the fifties and sixties and seventies, were several towns. They were regionalized, and right. you know, you, if you were because there is no NWA, but I mean, there's nothing. No, back there's then. There's, nothing. Is, there's no organized wrestling, even. You know, there's there's a few matches maybe going on in the Northeast, and but there's no organized territory of any kind. There's a couple promoters in Ohio, basically, and they happen to be in two different cities, but they're not cooperating with each other. They're not warring with each other. Like in the Houston case, there just happened to be two guys that both wanted to have matches in Houston, so. That's how that situation occurred. So there's nothing much happening with wrestling in the in. There are a few guys that are beginning to become stars in that era. You have Ed Strangler Lewis. Mm-hmm. You have a guy named Toots Mont and a guy named Billy Sandow. And these were guys in the Northeast where you had big populations and word got around and they said, oh boy, there's a big wrestler and so and so and so and so. Those were first stars and Roy was a star in his own right but he was in a different part of the country and there was no communication there was no phones there was no way people could talk hey there was a guy out there in New York you know and he didn't know anybody in New York and neither did any other wrestlers you just knew the guys that were in the area where you happened to be so it's a fragmented disorganized business there is no business basically there's still no business at that point that's where we are here and then i've been thinking about this for a while and how to present this and i don't want to get ahead of myself i want to make sure i cover things as we go so i don't have to back up because there's going to be a lot of history here 
and between now and uh, hopefully two, three years down the road. I think this story may take three years to tell it all, to get through Roy's generation, to get through my father. Yeah to get through me and Robert and Jimmy's generation. Well, now's a great opportunity for us to say, because one of the things is we had our pre-production meeting today. One of the things you mentioned to me is that on your Facebook page, and you can find Facebook at Ron Fuller Welch is where you find the Facebook page. Right. You are taking questions, and we are going to use those questions in subsequent stud casts. People will help you jog your memory with some of these great questions because there are a ton of historians out there that want to know these things and now a member of your this is royalty here this is wrestling royalty you're going to share some of the inside insight on this so and you're open to that yes as we go forward oh absolutely in fact uh it was kind of my idea i just got on my facebook page uh, actually two days ago and i had a clear blue i just said you know i'm going to do this stud cast and i want to include my fans i want to give them an opportunity to ask me question any question you want to and i actually said that i'm going to do five questions a program if we can do that that's what i I indicated i wanted to do and i would take the five best questions that i had each week and i will then narrow that down to one winner and whoever asked me the best question of the day i consider the best question of the week best question of the program i'm going to send them an autographed picture Mm. you know i want to tell the people's names if you send me one if you want to go to ron fuller welch that that my facebook page you have to friend me obviously and then you send me the question here's my question ron if you want to use this on the studcast i'd be uh, 85 questions in two hours i was bombarded I had no idea what to expect. Mm. I really thought maybe I, went, I might get a few. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, I mean, it was like ding, 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 ding. They started coming. Which and shows you the hunger for this story. And here's the thing. is we do this, because we're kind of making this up as we go along, too. There is no set oh, format yeah, to this, which format. is the beauty yeah, of this. Yeah. And so with that in mind, one of the things I think will happen with those questions is people will take us back in time. They'll jump us forward in time, which is all okay, because you want to tell the story chronologically. Yes. But yet, if we have to, every once in a while, like we're in, while we're in the 20s, somebody asks you a question for the 60s, that's a good question, you're going to answer it. I, I, I know you. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, and, I, and I look forward to it. And, and the beauty of this is, is this is our first studcast. These questions have nothing to do with what we're saying and what we're talking about now. Right on. I'm thinking that next week, we're going to get questions in that'll jump us back here again and that's precisely the point and so what we will do in subsequent studcast is if there are pertinent and good questions and things that we missed you're gonna go back i know you because your aim is to cover this as thoroughly as humanly possible that's exactly what i want to do i want to tell a story of how this sport developed from the very beginning that i don't think anybody else can tell I don't think anybody on the planet has a better grasp of how this all developed and and where this thing started and where where it ended, let's say with the territories, than I do. Because I'm lucky I rode down the road with the pioneer, one of the pioneers of the sport. He was the one of the first wrestlers to ever build what we call a territory. 
And it wasn't just a small territory. It was a 12-state territory. And I'm sure like every young boy, you probably thought at the time, this is normal. Every child has this because it's just my grandfather. And there's nothing normal about having that guy as your grandfather when he's unlocking the history that he was unlocking during those rides with you. Tell you what, Stud, we're about out of time here. Is there anything else you want to add here in Studcast 1? And I remind folks once again, Facebook, at Ron Fuller Welch, whatever you want to ask Ron, we will be using these questions going forward. Is there anything else you'd care to add here? First two or three of these Studcasts, if we don't get to the ones today, we'll start maybe next week. We'll pick them up in segment two. pick up some in segment two. And I want to apologize to people. I want people out there to know just exactly, Eck, you've you've made it very clear here, Tony, what's going on. is This is not a formatted or scripted. So I want to apologize to those that sent questions in to me and, and expecting to maybe potentially hear something on this first one. We haven't even had opportunity to sit and talk about how we're going to introduce these questions. So we're really in our infancy here, and uh, and we are going to start asking questions. I assume next 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 pod, next uh, studcast is going to be questions in it, and we will get to some of these people. I'll tell you this: I've got questions from Australia. I have questions from San Francisco. I have questions from Texas. I have questions from Canada. I have people that were on my Facebook that saw this that jumped in right away, and I was amazed at the quality of the questions. I was like, wow, this is going to be good. The love of professional wrestling, I believe, is a universal language, and I think it speaks to us at our core. And to people who are touched by that wonderful profession where these guys through the years have literally given their all i mean what a beautiful thing man and for you to open this up to us and allow me to be you know here i'm just i'm pinching myself today stud i want you to know that i'm pinching myself well well it's my pleasure i mean uh I'm 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 so pleased and proud to do it somebody my grandfather should have done it my dad should have done it uh uh the Fields Boys should have done it. I mean, uh, we've been very quiet about what we do and what we've done in this sport. And uh, it's it's an honor to be able to just open the floodgates here and let's let them know uh, uh, the real history. I mean, you know, everybody says, well, I know what happened. I know this and I know that. Uh, I don't think anybody knows it the way I know it and uh, certainly haven't experienced it the way I have. Ron, I want to thank you one more time, man, for coming down. Studcast 1, sounds like it's about in the books. I can't wait for episode 2. I can't wait either. I'll be giving a considerable thing, a lot of thought, and I can't wait to take these people on a journey because this is going to be something. If you're a wrestling fan, you're a historian, it doesn't make any difference. Old school, new school, WWE, whatever it may be. This is going to be probably something that you've, I know as a matter of fact, it'll be something you've never heard. And it's a story nobody can tell probably but me. For Craig Jenkins and the great Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud, this is Tony Basilio reminding you that episode one is in the books. If you want more information, Facebook at Ron Fuller Welch, Facebook at Ron Fuller Welch, Studcast 2 will be on the way before you know it. Until then, tell a friend. Spread the word for us on the Studcast.
Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.